Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Please be seated as you are, and uh, it's very good to be with you this morning, this splendid church. I must say, um, with a view like that, if the speaker is boring, you can always just look out of the window, and it's not many, not many churches where you have that opportunity. Um, we have quite a, a journey to travel this morning. Some of you will have been with me last night um, at Roanoke College when I was basically running in an hour the argument of the entire resurrection of the Son of God, which is my big book on Jesus' resurrection and why we can and should believe in it, both as historians and as Christians. And uh, what I have to say today really follows on from that, and, uh, but I hope will be self-standing if you weren't there last night, but I'm presupposing um, the historical argument I made about the fact of Jesus' resurrection, about what happened on the first Easter, and uh, about how we know that as a matter of history as well as faith. And I'm projecting forwards from there to say, what does that tell us about the future? About the future for the whole world, and then about, in the second half this morning, about who we are and what we are called to be in between the one and the other. That is the shape of what I'm trying to do. See, all too often, uh, people start off with Jesus' resurrection in the Gospels, and they say to themselves, well, that's great. The Gospel is basically about me and how I get saved. So if we start off with Jesus breaking the power of death, then that means that when I die, um, there will be a wonderful future, a wonderful salvation for me, um, however you conceive of that, and we'll come to that in detail. And then the question of what God is going to do with the whole world with the entire cosmos, kind of falls off the back of that a bit or is just perceived as a sort of interesting footnote, an appendage to a gospel which is basically about me, about us human beings, whereas in the New Testament, as we shall see, it's really rather different. And the big picture of what God is going to do for the whole world is the larger theater within which the more particular issues of me and you and our individual salvation get played out. And so what I want to do in this first half is to talk about God's future for the world and then for us within that, and then in the second half, the kind of real so what of it all, if that is what God is in the business of doing, what does the church's mission actually look like? How can we think wisely, Christianly, biblically, resurrectionally about the mission of the church? So I start off with the whole question of new creation. And if you know your Bible reasonably well, and somebody says to you, where do you find new creation in the Bible? You might uh, be able to go to two or three passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. But you might say, well, that's simply about me being a new creation. I could argue with you on that, but a lot of people have read it like that. And then likewise in Galatians chapter 6, uh, Paul says, neither circumcision matters nor uncircumcision. What matters is new creation. And again, people could say, well, that is just me as the new creation, me as a new creation, not the new creation. But then when we read a bit further and read a bit more widely in the New Testament and think as a first century Jew would think and remind ourselves that the God of the Bible is the creator God, the one who made heaven and earth and said it is very good, then we say to ourselves, wait a minute, did God really make this world and say that it's very good only then to say, actually, it's not terribly good after all, and we don't need to worry about it, and what matters is you, 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 and you, and I'm going to save you from the world. Does that make sense? 
And with that question in mind, we come to Paul's greatest letter, the letter to the Romans. And we find that Paul builds up and builds up that argument in the first half of the letter until it explodes like a shower of fireworks in chapter 8 when he says, actually, the whole creation will be set free from its bondage to decay to share the liberty of the glory of the children of God. You say, well, that's really interesting, but where does that come from? And how does it relate to anything else? And what does that mean? What will that look like? And so a lot of Christians reading Romans, a lot of evangelical, Protestant, Lutheran, Calvinist Christians reading Romans have screened out verses 18 to 26, a pretty silly thing to do when rhetorically it's obviously the climax of this part of the letter, and have said, well, that's just a bit on the side, that really we know that this letter is about us getting it together with God and being saved, and if God is for us, who can be against us, and so on. And so this is just a little sort of jeu d'esprit, a fancy from Paul's apocalyptic background that he's dropped in there. It's nothing of the kind. This is the big picture within which the rest of the picture, the other details, actually make sense. And in particular, we notice in Romans 8, and this is something that I've challenged Christians about again and again, we notice this word inheritance. If somebody said to you, what is your inheritance as a Christian? I suspect most of you would say, ultimately, it is heaven. Uh, Paul talks about going to obtain our inheritance, and we assume that this is the life of heaven. But in Romans 8, the inheritance is not heaven as opposed to earth. The inheritance is the whole new creation. Let me put it like this, as sharply as I can. From the point of view of the New Testament, what has happened to the idea of the holy land in the Old Testament, the inheritance of the children of Israel, is not that it's been abandoned, but that it's been broadened out so that now... The whole world is God's holy land. The whole world is God's holy land. And your inheritance as a Christian is not something away from the world, apart from the world. It is a renewed, restored world. And with that in mind, you read through the rest of the New Testament and you come to that great passage at the end in Revelation 21 and 22, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And within that new heaven and new earth, all that is beautiful and lovely and of good report has been set free from corruption, from the problems, from the pains, from the difficulties of the present creation and is enhanced and ennobled and liberated to be what God intended it to be. Um, John is at that point rooted very firmly in the Isaiahic vision, <clears throat> Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65 and 66, the vision of a creation in which the wolf and the lamb will lie down and no one will hurt or destroy. There will be no harm done. Rather, God's justice and God's peace, God's shalom will flood the whole creation. That is the picture that we have before us. And you see, that image of new creation, of creation restored, is so much bigger than just me and my salvation. And we've been misled by some key bits of our tradition in the Western church here. Think of Charles Wesley's wonderful hymn, Love Divine or Love's Excelling. It's a great hymn. I love to sing it. 
But when he gets to the last verse, he says, finish then thy new creation. And if we know our business, we ought to say, yes, indeed, please, Lord, do that. And then he turns it entirely into uh, human beings getting saved. Pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. And then he goes on, completely missing the point of Revelation 4 and 5. Changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. That image of Revelation 4 and 5 of people casting their crowns before the throne is not an image of the ultimate future. It's actually in Revelation, the heavenly dimension of what is going on when we in the present worship here on earth. Whatever we do, we do as Christians, we do at the intersection, the overlap point between heaven and earth so that that scene in Revelation 4 and 5 is not this is what it'll be like when we get to heaven. It's what it is already like when we are worshiping here in the heavenly dimension. That is the reality. And if you want the future picture, you go forward to Revelation 21 and 22 when heaven and earth come together in that great moment of renewal. This, I recognize, takes a lot of getting used to for many Christians in the Western world. Sometimes I have given a talk like this, and the first question is, but in heaven will such and such and this and that be true? And I say, that's not the point. We're not talking about heaven as the ultimate destination. Heaven, if you like, though the New Testament doesn't often use that word like this, can serve as a marker for the place where God looks after his people in between their death and their own final bodily resurrection into the new heavens and new earth. But as I said two nights ago, and as I've said frequently, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. (laughs) What happens after death is important. Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Jesus says to the dying thief, today you will be with me in paradise. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the ultimate point. That's not the ultimate destination. God will look after his people pro tem, and then there will be a great awakening. How do we then conceive of that? So much Christian thought, or would-be Christian thought, about the future of the world has tended to go in one or, one or other of two uh, equal and opposite mistakes. And the first, you can put down a marker with a, a thinker like Teilhard de Chardin, who was a very famous um, French Jesuit writer in the middle of last century. And his book, The Phenomenon of Man, sold in, in bulk in the 1950s and 1960s. And it was a vision of the world moving steadily further forwards under some kind of imminent process. God moving from within the world to transform the world from within so that the world would gradually, by a process of sort of theological evolution, eventually arrive, almost by a pantheist or a panentheist process, eventually arrive at some kind of perfection. Now, Tayard was no dewy-eyed romantic theorist. He had served as a stretcher-bearer during the First World War, and he knew all about the human misery and the suffering of the world. But he saw that as kind of the growing pains of, of creation, And he thought that eventually the world would grow through those growing pains, the present suffering, and arrive by an automatic process, directed by God, no doubt, but a process from within at what he called the omega point, the ultimate fulfillment. The trouble is with that, of course, that it really is actually deeply unrealistic 
that it is based on a kind of odd fusion of some bits of theology, little bits of Colossians, for instance, along with a lot of evolutionary optimism, which was around when Tyard was first studying. But actually, the history of this last um, century or so has made it much, much harder, I think, for most people to grasp that kind of vision. The world has not actually been getting better and better. And the problem with that is that even if it did, even if you could get to the point where finally we'd arrived at perfection, what would that say to all the people who had suffered horrible things in the process? There wouldn't be any sense of justice, any sense of, uh, of God really sorting all that out. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. Um, I often think of this at home because, uh, well, you heard various things about my life and don't believe everything you read in Wikipedia, but some of it at least is true. Um, but my, my desk is normally fairly full of paper coming and going in several different directions. And I love the story of the old Oxford professor who after he died, they uh, went into his room and they found on his desk that there were these layers of paper. And every time the paper had got too, uh, too appalling, he simply spread out a copy of the London Times over the whole thing and started again. Now, I don't recommend that to anyone who has any administrative responsibilities, but it is rather appealing as an idea. You'd have to build up your chair eventually. And so they did a kind of an archaeological dig through and found all this, all this unsorted stuff. But, you know, in a Tyardian vision of reality, that's what it would be like at the end, that God might be able to produce by this imminent process a world in which everything appeared to be lovely, but there'd be a lot of mess underneath, unsorted, undealt with, Pain not healed, wickedness still lying there, lurking there underneath. And it's because of that sense of, of evil um, and its power and its reality that other Christians have gone to the other extreme and have become dualistic and have embraced some kind or other of Gnosticism, the idea that this world is a dark and strange and bad place and that the only real thing for a sensible person to do is to find the way through this world and out the other side as a pure spirit going off into a non-spatio-temporal world while this present physical world gets thrown in the trash can. I suspect there are many Christians in Western Europe and in North America who actually believe that that is what they're supposed to think as Christians. That this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? So off we go. We're going somewhere else, and this world really doesn't matter at all. And then we read the Psalms. We think, wait a minute. Were the Psalms uh, just materialists who we have now to reject now that we're New Testament people? Because the Psalms say that God is coming to sort the world out. He is coming to set the world right. And that when he does that... The trees of the field will clap their hands and the valleys and hills will shout for joy. There's this wonderful sense of the wholeness of creation and that amazing vision at the end of Isaiah 55 where because of the word of God doing a new thing in the world, as the rain and the snow come down and don't return but water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout, so shall my word be, it will not return to me empty, but it will succeed in my purpose. And we as Western Christians say, oh, that's very nice because the word comes to me and it transforms my life so that I can get saved. And Isaiah says, no, that's not the picture. The picture is much, much bigger than that. 
And he says, you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. And before you, all the trees of the field will clap their hands and the mountains will spring forth with joy because instead of the thorn shall come up the myrtle and instead of the briar shall come up the cedar. And you see what's going on there. This is the reversal of the fall. The thorns and thistles that have clogged this physical earth through our sin in ways that we don't fully understand will be replaced by wonderful, fruit-bearing, sweet-smelling trees and shrubs. That's the vision of Isaiah, a vision of new creation within which the salvation of humankind is the glorious central feature, but not the only feature. God will remake heaven and earth. And so you see, over against a kind of evolutionary pantheism or panentheism, and over against a dualism that says this world doesn't matter, we say as biblical Christians, God is the good creator, evil is real and powerful and has corrupted his creation. But God's answer to that is neither to belittle evil and pretend that it doesn't really matter because we're all going to get somewhere in the end, nor to say that because of evil we'll throw the world away but to redeem the world from that evil, from that corruption, that slavery to decay. So that, as Paul makes it clear in Romans 8, what God did for Israel bringing them out of Egypt at the Exodus, out of slavery, what God did for Jesus Christ bringing him out of the slavery and corruption of death on the third day, God is going to do for you and me if we are in Christ, but God is going to do it for the whole creation, for the whole cosmos. That is the picture of new creation, which results directly from the achievement of Jesus of Nazareth dying under the weight of the world's evil and rising again to launch the project of new creation. And as we'll see in a little while, uh, that is part at least of what the Gospels are trying to tell us at that point. Now, of course, thinking about new creation is difficult. It's actually in some ways easier to think about heaven because we can get enough bits of Plato from popular culture and we can project onto this mythical screen called heaven all the things that we really like, all the things that we really want, and we'll just imagine that that's all going to happen to us sooner or later. The New Testament is more subtle than that and gives us a range of metaphors, of images, in order to say that the new creation, when it comes, will be like the present creation, only significantly transformed. And all we can do is guess and point and look through a kind of a cloud of unknowing with the help of these biblical images. And as I've often said, we don't have a photographic advance uh, sight of what the new creation is going to be like. What we have is a set of signposts pointing into a bright mist, the mist which hides God's future from us. And we know these signposts are telling the truth because they are rooted in the fact of Jesus himself, but the signposts are not the reality, so don't mistake them for the reality. What you do with signposts is not sit there and admire the signpost, but go in the direction that it tells you to go. And one of the signposts, obviously, is the great image of harvest. All those biblical parables, those gospel parables of Jesus about sowing seed and something coming up and about the secret seed that is going on while well, well, we're going to bed and getting up and we don't know why the seed is doing what it's doing, but it's doing its work. 
God is sowing new creation in his world. That's what the kingdom of God is all about through the teaching and preaching and work of Jesus and ultimately through his death and resurrection. And Paul uses the same image for resurrection itself in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about uh, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And when it dies, then it comes up and God gives it a body, each appropriately according to what sort of a seed it is. And he's not saying that when you sow a human being in the ground, in other words, when you bury a human being, that that body functions like an acorn which turns into an oak or whatever. He's saying it's something like that. It's a way of saying the new body is continuous with the present one, but transformed. I'll come back to the detail of the resurrection in a minute. But that's the first image, is the image of harvest. Another image in the New Testament is the image of marriage. Obviously, Revelation 21, new heavens and new earth, married at last. I want you to see, because actually this is the framework for the biblical ethic of human uh, gender and sexual behavior and so on, that whereas in Genesis 1, the whole of that great creation story reaches its great flowering with the creation of male and female in God's image. And it's at that point that God saw all that he'd made and said it was very good. So in the same way, when you come right across to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, the new heavens and new earth, we have the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. The New Jerusalem, the church, who is the bride of Christ. And so we have this image of marriage as though the present creation is like an engaged couple that are at some apparent distance from each other. They're, they're in touch, but it's sort of mysterious and they're wanting to get together, but it hasn't happened yet. And that's how the world currently is. And one day, it will have got together. It will have come together. Heaven and earth will be one. Do you sing that wonderful hymn, This is My Father's World? Do you know that hymn? Uh, for, for some reason, it never made it into any of the English hymn books. I'm trying to sort of pu push it um, to, to get it in, in England because um, the, 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 last, the last verse of that says it all and gets the eschatology right. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Thank God for some of those great hymns. You know, you sing that all day. It's got it exactly right. The coming together of heaven and earth. And that's there in the parables as well. Oh, there's another biblical image about the future of God's world. And it's the image of the victorious battle. Now, we in the post-20th century world are rightly shy of using militaristic imagery because we've seen how in the Western world over the last 200 years, really, many Christians have cheerfully sung onward Christian soldiers and have gone out to do wicked things thinking that God is blessing them as they do. And there are real problems down that line. But in Colossians, Paul speaks of Christ winning the victory over the principalities and powers in his death on the cross. Deeply paradoxical because because, of course, he was suffering, looks as if the principalities and powers are winning a victory over him. In fact, it was the other way around. And in 1 Corinthians 15, again, verses 20 through 28, Paul talks about the fact that at the end, God will win the final great apocalyptic battle. But the final battle will not be against the Romans or the Syrians or, or whoever in this worldly terms we may perceive as physical enemies. The final enemies are sin and death. 
sin and death themselves. And you do not win the victory over sin and death by using the means of sin and death. But this image of a battle transposed onto the cosmic sphere is another way of saying that there is continuity and discontinuity. God's people are at present struggling, but one day the struggle will be over. God will win the battle. God will be all in all. The battle will be done, as in that hymn. And then there is the image of birth itself as in Romans 8 where Paul talks in that passage I've already quoted two or three times Paul talks about a new birth for the whole creation says the present creation is groaning together in travail it's an image of birth pangs of a woman going into labor as though the whole creation is like a woman longing to give birth. And that image has echoes going all the way back through the Old Testament, at least as far as the book of Hosea and possibly earlier. It's a, it's a deeply Jewish image for the fact that there is continuity and discontinuity from where we are at the moment in the world to where we are going to be. Continuity because the new world is to be born from the womb of the old discontinuity because it will be like a great rupture a great new birth a great breaking out of God's new creation and the last image which we find maybe not the last the last I'm going to mention um, is that of a great court scene a juridical setting where as in Daniel 7 the judge the ancient of days God himself takes his seat and says I'm now going to sort out this world once and for all and to the Jews over a thousand and more years this image uh, prior to the time of Christ and then, of course, 2,000 years subsequently. This image has been hugely important as the Jewish people have found themselves oppressed by one uh, rogue empire after another and put upon and persecuted and so on. And again and again, they've come to God and said, God, you are the creator God. You are the God of justice. Therefore, you have the responsibility to sit as judge, to hear the case and to find in our favor. Thank you very much. And so, again and again, the Psalms say, judge me, O God. Now, we as Christians are a bit scared of saying that, perhaps rightly. We don't want God to judge us because we're a little frightened of what will happen um, if he were to suddenly. But in, in the Psalms and with that vision of the law court, the, the appeal to God to judge is like in the Gospels, the, 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 the importunate widow coming to the judge and saying, please, will you try my case? Because somebody has been oppressing me, and until you sort it out, I'm going to stay a victim. And I want you to put it straight. And so there's this image that at the moment the world is out of kilter because wicked people and wicked powers are having their own way in the world. And eventually God will sort it all out. And those who are, in fact, in the right at the moment will be vindicated. So those are a range of biblical images. And as I say, they're none of them a photograph of what the new world is actually going to be like. But they are signposts so that when the new world arrives, we'll say, ah, I see. There is that element to it. There is that bit of it. This is actually how it was going to be all along. Now, within that great picture, and I've spent perhaps more time than I should have done on it, but I want to, to rub your noses in it because it's an image, uh, a picture of new creation, which many Christians just never contemplate from one year's end to the next, and it's important that we do so. Within that, and only within that, we can actually understand what it means to talk of Christ's second coming. Uh, 
If you simply say, do you believe in Jesus' second coming, most well-taught Christians will say yes, but they will put that dogma within the wrong framework. And they will put it, for instance, within a dualistic framework where the second coming of Christ is simply to snatch people away from this world and to take them off to somewhere else called heaven while the world heads rapidly for Armageddon and destruction. And you will know that I'm talking about that whole left-behind theology which goes back to the Derby Plymouth Brethren movement in the 19th century and has got some other antecedents but that's basically where it's where it's grown up from within our own culture at least and if we talk about the second coming simply without stopping to think of the framework within which that happens there is a danger that will go that route and I don't know how many of you were there last night but I was asked a question about the rapture theology and I explained that the rapture as commonly conceived is, I believe, a misunderstanding of what Paul is actually getting at in 1 Thessalonians 4. Because when Christ comes, he comes not to rescue from the world, but to transform the world. Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Is he not going to claim that as his own? Come, as we say in one of the Advent hymns, claim the kingdom for thine own. And the kingdom is not somewhere else. The kingdom will be the transformation of earth with the coming of heaven. We need to reflect a bit as to how we talk about where Jesus is now. What does the doctrine of the ascension mean to you? That Jesus was some kind of primitive space traveler going off to a place called heaven up in the sky somewhere? Uh, I, I said to somebody the other day, I wrote an article in Bible Review, which is a kind of uh, an ecumenical and interfaith journal of biblical studies, some years ago, um, trying to say why the rapture theology as popular con popularly conceived was wrong. And among the letters that they received, um, uh, some cancelling subscriptions and so on, um, were, was one who said, how does Mr. Wright think he's going to get to heaven if he doesn't get raptured? And I have this image of people really believing that heaven is a place within our space-time universe a few miles upstairs somewhere. That's simply not the way that biblical cosmology works. Heaven is God's space, God's sphere, God's dimension of reality. And the life of heaven intersects with the life of earth in all sorts of ways which are mysterious but very potent for the Jews, they, there were symbols of this which became actual as people responded to them. The temple in Jerusalem was not just a reminder of heaven. The temple was thought of as the place where heaven and earth overlapped. So when you went to the temple, it wasn't as if you were in heaven. You actually were in heaven. That was where the two spheres intersected. And gradually, Jews came to see the Torah, the law, in the same way. So that when you sat and studied Torah, there you were actually in heaven, in the presence of God. So that one of the rabbis contemporary with Jesus said, where two or three sit and study Torah, the Shekinah, the glory of God, rests upon them. And they, they, they talked about wisdom in that way and, and other, other features as well, that there are mysterious ways in which heaven and earth overlap. So where is Jesus now? Jesus is not far away. He's not miles up in the sky. He is present but hidden. And that is why, in some significant passages, when the New Testament talks about the second coming, it doesn't talk about coming as though he's miles away and has to make a great long journey. It talks about his appearing. His appearing. Who shall stand, said Malachi, when he appears? 
for he is like a refiner's fire. And John, picking that up in his first letter, says, we, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And Paul in Colossians 3, similarly, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, because you have died and your life is hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see what's going on? Instead of thinking of heaven as miles away up in the sky or somewhere else, what we are encouraged to do is to think of heaven as a present dimension hidden behind an invisible curtain. Imagine if there was a great curtain hanging across here and this was all just painted on it. And then suddenly, though you hadn't even realized there was a curtain there, somebody yanked it back and instead of this beautiful scene that you see, there was another beautiful scene as much more beautiful than that as that is than, than what's here present to us. And we would all gasp with awe and realize that had been there all along and we had been ignorant of it. And when that happens, when heaven and earth become one, what will be the central feature of that? Or should I say, who will be the central feature of that? Of course, the living Lord Jesus himself. And from our point of view, waiting in ignorance without even realizing there is a hidden curtain there, let alone that it might be pulled back. It will be as though he has arrived, as though he has come from somewhere else. But actually the reality will be that he will have appeared because he is there all along. I'll come back to what that means for us uh, in, later on this morning, God willing. And when he appears, he comes to set all things right, to sort it out to judge, not in a nasty, vindictive way, but in what today we are starting to call restorative justice, a healing justice. Yes, of course, there is judgment there again and again in the New Testament as well as the Old. Judgment in the negative sense of those who have persisted to, and refused to come God's way. Those who've said, I really don't want to worship the God I see in Jesus. I want to worship the gods who make me feel good about myself because of this or that or the other. For those who want to go that route, God will say with sorrow, okay, that is your choice. It's part of your dignity as a human being that you're allowed to dehumanize yourself. And that is the, 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 the road of sorrow and shame and sadness. But God comes to put everything right, to set it right at last. And that happens through the judgment which Jesus will administer. And within that picture, and only within that picture, we can understand what our own resurrection will be all about. I fear that for many Christians, when they say the creed on a Sunday morning or any other time, they get to that clause, the resurrection of the body, and either they swallow hard and they think, well, I suppose I better believe that, but I'm not actually sure how to, but I'll try. Or they think, this is actually a metaphor for the immortality of the soul. It's bizarre, because, of course, the phrase resurrection of the body um, is the not exactly the opposite, but certainly radically different from the immortality of the soul. And yet many Christians in the Western tradition have been so affected by Platonism, so affected by this idea that where we're heading for is a disembodied heaven, 
that they actually hear the phrase resurrection of the body and they translate it out as simply immortality. In fact, I was once on a phone-in program uh, on, on the evening of Good Friday about 10 or a dozen years ago, and I was sitting at my own desk at home talking down the phone onto live radio, and one of the other guests who was on the phone was my, the man who is now my predecessor but one, Bishop David Jenkins, who has some rather strange views about resurrection and so on. And the two of us from our respective desks were connected up with the studio where they had people phoning in and asking questions. And that was really quite surreal, um, not being able to see even the other person that I was on the program with and get the body language. But still, one person phoned up and said, listen, I don't know what all this resurrection nonsense is about. He says, I'm a Christian. I'm intending to go to heaven when I die. And I'm an old man now, and I have a creaky old body. I've got arthritis, and I get sick from time to time. He says, I'm looking forward to getting rid of this body. When I go to heaven, I certainly don't want to have this body, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to getting rid of it and, and, and not having to bother about it anymore. And that is a position that many people have actually taken. What is the point of having a body? Wouldn't it be better to be a disembodied soul? Well, welcome to Platonism. But that is not what Jews classically, and certainly not what Christians classically, have believed and taught. Rather, we are taught, and of course it's deeply rooted in the New Testament, that we will be given a new, transformed body. Oh, how glorious and resplendent, fragile body shalt thou be, when endued with so much beauty, full of health and strong of, and free, full of vigor, full of splendor that shall last eternally. It's another great Easter hymn. Think about it. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about being more fully clothed than we are at present. The promise of the resurrection body is not that we will, in the words of Hamlet in Shakespeare, shuffle off this mortal coil and go and be something somehow less, a naked spirit, but rather that we'll be more fully clothed. So that, you know how it is if somebody's been very sick, somebody you know, and you say to a friend, poor old so-and-so, he's just a shadow of his former self. Well, let me tell you, if you're a Christian, you are just a shadow of your future self. There is a real you, which isn't a spark deep down inside somewhere, but is a reality which is waiting for you, waiting like the costumes um, in, in the, in the theater wardrobes, waiting for you to put on so that you can become more gloriously and truly the person God made you to be. And this is what is meant when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, when Peter says in 1 Peter 1 and, and sundry other passages in the New Testament about a salvation which is waiting for you in heaven. Please don't misunderstand that. If I say... If, supposing a friend's coming to visit me, and I say, um, I've kept some cold beer in the fridge for you, that doesn't mean my friend has to get into the fridge to drink the beer. <laughs> it means that when he arrives, we get the beer out of the fridge so that he can drink it in the living room. And when Paul says this new salvation, this new body is waiting for you in heaven, that doesn't mean so that when you go to heaven you'll get it, but rather so that it will come from heaven. Heaven is God's space, God's sphere, God's reality. So that when heaven and earth are one, then this salvation which is stored up for you, kept in the cupboard if you like, will be brought out of the cupboard so that it will be yours and you can enjoy it great deal one could say about the resurrection but let me just say some things very swiftly because i want to close quite soon and leave time for q a before coffee when will this happen when god renews heaven and earth according to paul in first corinthians 15 jesus is the only person 
who is currently raised from the dead. Everybody else who is in Christ is waiting, he says, waiting so that at his coming, then they will be raised. He says, Christ the first fruits, and at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christians often get very confused about this and ask me about that if, if you'd like. How will it happen? How on earth could that happen? On earth being the key phrase. Paul's answer, John's answer, the New Testament, the early Christian answer again and again, is by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will do for you what God did for Jesus at Easter. Romans 8, 10, and 11. If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit who lives within you. Read Ephesians 1 about the power of God, the power which raised Jesus from the dead is now given to you by the spirit so that eventually that spirit will be the agent through which you too will be raised from the dead. And why does resurrection have to happen? Um, people often say, isn't that a little bizarre? Isn't that sort of a crazy thing to give us all bodies again? Uh, what, what's going to happen to them? Why? Because this will be the ultimate vindication of creation. Creation is good. You as human beings, embodied human beings, are good and lovely. And God takes delight in your, um, in your being completely who you are. But he will take delight much more when your who you are-ness is set free from corruption and decay, mortality and sin. So that we do believe as Christians in an ultimate immortality, but not a disembodied immortality, rather an embodied immortality. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal must put on immortality. Put it on. Not by taking off flesh, but by getting immortal body, immortal substance. And what will this mean? You know, th this, this question goes back to some of the early fathers. Tertullian um, uh, was asked the question by somebody, supposing um, a cannibal eats a Christian and then the cannibal gets converted, so the cannibal is now a Christian, and then the cannibal dies as well, who's going to have which bits of body in the new life? nice question and Tertullian doesn't bother to answer he just goes don't ask silly questions no, but um, uh, Origen interestingly at the turn of the second third century Origen faces the same question he gives it a more interesting answer which is this that Origen already knew people in the ancient world knew a lot more than we sometimes give them credit for that we human beings are always in a state of flux I'm not a scientist, I'm not a biologist, but my understanding is that the human body that I have, that you have, actually its entire molecular kit changes gradually over the course of about seven years or so. Obviously, we cut off hair and we cut off fingernails and so on, but actually skin and substance is actually changing. It's in a state of flux. So that I am not physically the same person that I was 15 or 20 years ago. There is continuity of form but discontinuity of matter. So I look more or less the same, changed a bit, but more or less the same, but there's been discontinuity of matter. Now, Origen said, that's going on all the time. It's not a big deal. God is responsible for all the atoms and molecules in the world, and God is the creator. He can make more of them. So God will give us, just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, a new body which will be recognizably ourselves only more so. And it's not a big deal. 
if somebody's body has been burnt and their ashes have been scattered. You know the, the story, the true story. 177 AD in Lyon in southern France, the local pagans got fed up with the Nascan Christian church there, not least because they were preaching and teaching resurrection of the body. So they uh, hauled some of them in, they tortured them, they killed them, and as they were killing them, they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to burn your bodies to ashes, and then we're going to sprinkle the ashes in the river Rhone, and they'll be carried out to sea, and then what will happen about your resurrection? And they did exactly that, including to the old bishop of Lyon. And a young, younger man called Arrhenius came back from Rome where he'd been to Lyon, became bishop, and carried on preaching resurrection of the body. Because God is not phased by funny things that happen to bodies. I do think that actually uh, cremation doesn't help symbolically. Um, I prefer burial myself as a, as a Christian mode of dealing with corpses. But God can do whatever God needs to do to put things where they have to be. God is the creator. John Polkinghorne, the great uh, scientist theologian of our day, our day, one of the great scientist theologians of our day, puts it like this. God will download our software onto his hardware until the time when he gives us new hardware to run the software again for ourselves. <laughs> now, that's, that's, that's as good a metaphor as, as many of the others that you get. Unfortunately, Paul was not aware of that particular metaphorical <laughs> matrix. Now, I, I hope I've said enough to give you a picture which I take to be a biblical picture of God's new world, God's new creation, and of how that all fits together. Of course, there is masses more that I could say, but I wanted to start off with that big picture because if you really grasp the resurrection of Jesus and see it not just as a sign that there is, after all, a life after death, but as what it really is in the New Testament, a sign that God's new creation has begun and that you are going to be part of it, then you have to stretch your mind to embrace that large picture. And then you have to ask the question, which will occupy us, please God, in the second part this morning, of how then should we live within the world where God's new creation has already begun? How are we to be people of that new creation to take God's project forward in mission and in faith and in hope. And we'll get to that in the second part. We are now going to have questions. There he is. He's emerged. Magic. He wasn't there a minute ago. Um, appeared. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so, just, that's a wonderful sight. Yeah. Do you want some water? Uh, yes, that's fine. Thanks. Okay. If you have more questions, give them to an usher. And um, obviously, we, we got about 25 so far. We may do three or four of the first session, but uh, give your questions to the ushers at the break, and that would be great. But um, we have four for you, and okay. if you don't like them, just go to the next one. Um, first question would be, from your insider's view, um, what do you see happening in the next decade in the Anglican Communion and the Episcopal Church? <laughs> That's strictly off topic. Um, I... <laughs> I, I, without wishing to drop names, I, I was in conversation with Archbishop Rowan Williams a few months ago, and I said, you know, I am far more confident that there will one day be new heavens and new earth in which righteousness will dwell than I am about the immediate future of the Anglican Communion. And he gave me a rather wan smile and said, yes, that was how he saw it as well, um, but that maybe that was the right way around. It would be better uh, that than knowing exactly what was going to happen in the church tomorrow and being fuzzy about the ultimate future. But um, I, I do think there is this thing called hope, and hope is a virtue. 
And we don't, in the Christian world, talk enough about the virtues. I think I rebuke myself on this. And a virtue is not something that comes naturally. something you have to work at. And the way you work at hope is by not by drumming up a sense of optimism within yourself about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next year, but by looking again and again and again at the resurrection of Jesus and saying, if that's what God did as the climax of his work, and if that is the launching pad for everything new and good that is to happen, then God can actually do all sorts of new things, even though they may look hopeless to us. And one goes on reminding oneself of that. This is not whistling in the dark. This is singing the Easter song. And gradually, as you say that, it becomes a habit. And I have found over the last four years, since the events of General Convention 2003 and other similar things, and non-Episcopalians, non-Anglicans in the room, forgive me, this is a kind of an in-house um, uh, problem that we're suffering at the moment. But there were things that happened in 2003 which really ruptured the the fellowship of the Anglican communion worldwide. And at several points in the last four years, the image which I've had in my mind is this, that I've seen, it's as though we're driving a car along a, a, a narrow mountain road and there's a steep precipice down to one side and a sheer wall up the other side. And again and again, it's as though the car has lurched towards the, the precipice and actually one or two wheels have seemed to go right over the edge and, and I've thought, we're lost, this is it, we're done. And then suddenly, somebody has yanked the wheel back, and huh, we're just back on track again. And I've seen that happen again and again over the last four years. And, and I, that gives me uh, not a blueprint for what's going to happen, but a confidence that God is with us and God is steering us forward. And that if we actually hang together on this one, and if we don't do anything precipitate in the meantime, then things will play out. We may not all like the way it plays out, but things will play out and God will be honored. The trouble is that God's judgment, judgments are always much slower than we'd like them to be. And that's been a problem right the way through biblical history. We want God to step in and sort it out now. And we're impatient modern Westerners. You know, if there's a problem, we want to phone up the relevant person and fix it by the weekend. Thank you very much. And it's just not like that in human lives and in the church. And we have to be patient and take step by step by step. And it's often very frustrating. I would like to go faster. And I, several times I've thought, come on, we've got to solve this one now. I think at the moment where we are in the process, we may well see some major things happen within the next six months, which may cause the Anglican communion to reshape in significant ways. But I'm not a prophet in that sense. I really don't know. Um, so, uh, sorry, that's probably as far as we can get. I could talk about it all morning, but that's not the point. Yeah. Uh, question number two. You have been accused of giving up justification by faith. Why are you so accursed? What is at issue? Accused, you mean not accursed? I think he meant accused, not accursed. At least I hope I'm not accursed. Um, maybe I am by some. Go on to Google and type in Tom Wright justification by faith, and there's a lot of nasty stuff out there. Um, this is, again, I'm sorry, this is, this is strictly off today's topic, except insofar as eschatology that is, looking at what God is doing about bringing the future into the present. Eschatology is the framework for understanding justification by faith. And though I haven't been talking about it this morning, when you look ahead to that day when God will set everything right at last, that is the ultimate justification. That is the moment when God will declare of 
these people, his people, you really are my children. You know, when, she, when God said to Jesus in his baptism, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. God then said the same, in effect, when he raised him from the dead. Paul says that the resurrection was God saying, this really was my son all along, didn't I tell you? And in the same way, when we are raised from the dead at the last, that will be God's way of saying, these really are my people vindicating us before the world. That is final justification, future justification. The point about justification by faith in Romans 3, Galatians 2, Philippians 3, etc., etc., is that that when somebody believes that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, God brings that future verdict forwards into the present so that already when you believe the gospel... You hear that verdict announced over you. You are my beloved child. Your sins are forgiven. You are part of my people. That's how it works. Now, because I learned that from Paul, I find it difficult to say that there's much wrong with it. Now, of course, many people disagree with my exegesis of Paul. Fine, let's do the exegesis. Uh, I'm not trying to impose a structure from anywhere else. What I'm trying to do is what my own evangelical tradition told me to do, which is to study the Bible for all it's worth and come back and tell people what you find. The frustrating thing, frankly, is that sometimes when you do that, people prefer the Westminster Confession to St. Paul. Now, that's a serious problem. Now, my my Anglican tradition is not automatically right. I'm not saying I prefer the 39 Articles to the Westminster Confession. If I had been sitting in the Jerusalem chamber in Westminster in um, whenever it was, 1648 or 1650, sometime around then, I might well have said, yes, this is as good as we can get it right now, this Westminster Confession. But actually, that's not how I think faith is meant to work. Our formula is ought to say as the basic rubric, go back to the Bible. Luther didn't die for me, Calvin didn't die for me, Thomas Cranmer didn't die for me, the Puritan fathers didn't die for me, Jesus died for me. The things that people wrote in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries are not inspired scripture. Scripture is inspired scripture. And the great thing for me about being an Anglican is that actually the the Anglican rule is go back and read scripture, and if that makes you disagree with some of the things that we have thought we we were thinking, fine, let's work with that. And so that's been my underlying policy. And if it it arrives with controversy in terms of justification by faith, well, let's do the exegesis together. Sorry, um, again, this was strictly off topic, except insofar as justification can be well understood if we put it on the eschatological map I've sketched. Have we got any more irrelevant irrelevant questions? Yeah. Yeah. Right. The problem was they had to write their questions before the lecture. I think that's part of it. Let's jump to number four. Uh, what about the intermediate period between death and the day of judgment and the new heaven and new earth? Or in, the intermediate period. Could you talk to that? Yes, speak to that. That's, that's hugely important. And, and of course, that, that, is, that is very relevant. And it's pastorally, pastorally relevant. Um, uh, the last funeral I took was a few weeks ago. It was a, a beloved aunt of mine who died full of years and full of faith. Lovely lady. She was my godmother. And... Uh, It was wonderful, actually, to entrust her to the safe keeping of God, her creator, of Jesus, her redeemer, of the spirit who had sanctified her. And we found in her her Bible uh, 
after she died, and on a little slip of paper, a I find this very moving, a prayer which I had actually written several years ago, and it's in, in one of my books, I think now long out of print, a Trinitarian prayer, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me and all the world. And it's wonderful to take a funeral of somebody who had clearly made that prayer her own over many years and had lived by it. And uh, I, so I, I, I really loved, actually, entrusting her to God's care. And I don't have much of a language to talk about where she is now. I want to say she is with God, she is in God's care. I want to say she is with Christ, which, as Paul says, is far better. I want to say that she is today with Jesus in paradise, like the dying thief on the cross. But she has not yet been raised from the dead. Now, at this point, some Christians have used the language of the soul. That's fine, as long as you realize that the word soul is not a word which denotes a particular part of you. It's a heuristic word. That is to say, it's a label that, for convenience sake, we stick onto a puzzle because we haven't got any other way of getting at the puzzle. The soul is a way of talking about me being me in the presence of God. It's just a way of kind of labeling that. It's not to say it's a substance, and certainly not to say that it's a platonic thing which existed before you were conceived in the womb and is going to be immortal come what may. So that when the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 3, says, the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God and there shall no torment touch them. In the sight of the unwise they seem to die, but they are at peace. I want to say, yes, that's exactly right. But often when the church has quoted that, okay, it's apocryphal, but that's been woven into some church traditions, that bit of Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 3. We forget that Wisdom goes on, later on in chapter 3, to talk about resurrection. At the time of their visitation, it says, they will arise and run like sparks through the stubble, and the Lord will set them over nations and kingdoms. So the being at rest in the presence of God, or being held in the hand of God, is not the end of the story. That's a way of saying that's a temporary holding pattern, back to Polkinghorne's hardware and software and so on. And so I don't much mind what images you use as long as you continually remind yourself and anyone who you have to teach of the ultimate goal, and then within that we entrust one another into God's safekeeping. Interesting, interesting if you look back at tombstones over the last four or 500 years in the Western world. Up until roughly the middle or late 18th century, tombstones tended to say things like, I shall arise, in Latin, resurgam. In other words, I'm resting at the moment, but I'm going to be back. After about some time, late 18th, 19th century, that just got lost off a bit. And instead, you have all sorts of tombstones about gone home at last, or eternal rest. Now, I know that those phrases are vague, pious ways of comforting one another, and I don't despise that. I'm a pastor, I hope, at heart, and we need to give the comfort of the gospel. But when we're teaching about this, we need to give the clarity of the gospel, because the comfort of, yes, this person is safe with God, safe with Jesus now, um, in ways that it's hard to describe, mustn't obscure the great vision of the ultimate future. Now, there's much more one could say, for instance, the 17 reasons why I don't believe in purgatory and things like that. I wrote a little book called For All the Saints on that, um, which came out two, three years ago. So if you're interested, um, you could check that out there. Um, plenty of time for another...
Yeah, no, one or two more. Okay. And you would take one or two more from the board. Um, Jerry, since you set all this up, you get to ask a question. Any question you want to ask? Um, again, one of, the, one of the nice things about being an Anglican is that we don't have any official position on that. I, uh, uh, um, uh, a, a friend of mine who's an Anglican priest in Montreal was, um, was once asked by a Baptist friend, um, what do Anglicans teach about the second coming? And he said, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And he stopped. And the Baptist sort of waiting. He said, that's all? And, uh, and, and my friend said, that's enough. And the, Bapt and the Baptist said, that's refreshing. Yeah. Um, because there is, a, there is a kind of reverent agnosticism. This is why I say I don't have a roadmap of the future. We have a set of signposts pointing into a fog, and we believe it's God's fog, and that's where we have to go. Now, there is the language about the millennium, which occurs, of course, towards the end of the book of Revelation. It is very mysterious. I do not have a kind of an inside track on it or a, a private take which will solve all the problems. I think it, what, the, what the language of the millennium is doing is resolutely affirming the goodness and God-givenness of creation and the fact that God longs for this creation to flourish under the rule of Christ. That's what that language is affirming. In other words, it's standing, and it was in the second and third century already, in Irenaeus and so on, it's standing over against the dualism of Gnosticism, which says we're just going to escape from this world, and that means we don't need to worry about trying to make the world a better place in the process. Because the millennial hope gives energy to a positive mission. Not, I mean, the, the, the premillennial hope, um, which often goes with dualism, with, with the, that, the kind of rapture theology, uh, gives rise to a mission which is simply snatching a few so souls to be saved from a world which is already on fire and heading for destruction. The, the postmillennial hope, which, as you say, inspired a lot of the early missionary movements in the uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century, and interestingly left quite a mark in my own diocese, the... Uh, the house that Maggie and I live in, the, we, we live in the front bit of it, which was built on by Bishop Richard Trevor in the mid-18th century. He was a great post-millennialist, and he believed all, all of that stuff and supported missions and supported work with the Jewish people and so on on that basis. So there's a, there's a lot of that around in our tradition. But the post-millennialist hope is that God isn't actually going to let this world corrupt and decay. God is going to do new things, and God can and will transform present structures of society. Now, of course, I don't want to say, I wouldn't ever say, that we can actually build that kingdom, that millennium ourselves, um, as though just by our own efforts, even with help from the Holy Spirit, we can actually produce utopia. I really don't think that's going to happen. But I think the millennial hope is a way of holding on to the goodness of creation and the fact that through the reign of Christ, which has already begun, you know, that's what the ascension is all about. Christ is already enthroned as Lord of heaven and of earth, that things can be transformed and will be transformed in ways that we can't imagine at the moment. But that is simply a way of probing a little bit into the fog and if somebody tells me that there are other signposts which cut across that road, I shan't be uh, altogether, altogether worried. Maybe time for one more before coffee. Let's say that God called you and said, um, Tom, I need you to write a letter to the churches of the United States of America. What would you praise and what would you say um, would be kind of a uh, reproof? 
Oof, oof, oof. The praising bit is easy. Um, there, to anyone just getting off the plane coming from England, there is a wonderful energy and sense of possibility about this country, which I just love. And it's funny, I can sort of feel it coming upon me halfway over the Atlantic in the plane. I think, oh, yeah, I'm going to that nice place where they have this sort of can-do culture. You know, England, we have a can't-do culture. You know, um, somebody has an idea and they say, oh, no, that's not going to work. We thought of that 20 years ago. It didn't work then. Uh, never mind. You know, just go back to sleep. And, um, and uh, it's, it's, it's pretty depressing, actually, sometimes. And, and I love the sense of possibility, you know. Somebody gets a, a glimmer of something. We, we could actually do this. Um, let, let's raise some money, build a building, do this. Um, and th there's, there's this wonderful sense. And, and that, that, that comes with the turf, almost literally, of being a young country, of having a large space in which to spread, um, whereas we are an old country, a bit tired, and we're very crowded. And when, whenever you turn around, you bump into somebody else who wants to do it differently and, and so on. So it's, I, I love that sense of refreshing newness. And, and that has a great spiritual energy about it. And one of the ways it plays out, which I think is terrific in your culture, is um, adult Christian education. You do that here in ways that put us in Britain to shame. I've been to many, many churches in the States which have quite serious adult Sunday schools and midweek classes where people are seriously studying major topics, whether it's biblical, theological, cultural, ethical, um, how to help the homeless, uh, whatever. People are getting stuck into doing, um, helping people off drugs, um, housing the homeless, whatever, whatever it is. In our churches, a lot of people just don't seem to have the energy or the time for that. And it's, so it's, it's wonderfully energizing. It's much harder for me coming into somebody else's culture to talk about the, the, the downsides, the negatives. I do from time to time because I see the great pitfalls, and we share them. You know, we always say when, when, when America sneezes, Europe catches a cold the next week. And, you know, when, when something happens here, um, the, there, is, there is a kind of a wave that comes at, at us over the Atlantic from it. And I was saying some of this the other night, that American culture has tended to, to uh, uh, have a default mode of Gnosticism, of um, a separation of heaven and earth, which has both right-wing forms and left-wing forms. And one of the spin-offs of that has been the all-too-eager embracing of an imperial agenda, which you inherited from us Brits. You know, we did empire big time a century and more ago. And as I said the other night to some of you, um, we have spent a century licking our wounds and counting the cost of that very, very ambiguous empire. And I really hope and pray that my beloved American friends don't have to spend as long counting the cost of theirs. It's a different kind of empire, but it is an empire. And it uses the same rhetoric, and it is a deeply, deeply ambiguous thing. And I would encourage you to explore the ambiguity and not take for granted um, certain political positions. And this, this doesn't mean I'm telling you how to vote in your next election because life's much more complicated than that. I merely notice that some of this is going on. And particularly within the postmodern mood, there's a deeply individualistic culture about just me doing my thing, me discovering who I really am, so I'm going to get out of whatever structures I'm in so that I can go someplace else and be myself. And then churches do that and then groups do that and so on. And that, uh, you can do that in your country because there is so much space. Um, it's much harder in a country like mine, and so perhaps I just notice that that's going on. Whereas the gospel is calling us to a costly unity 
Paul says in, in Ephesians 3, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And what he means by that is that the church is to be a many-splendored, many-colored kind of thing. And we cannot, we dare not go the whole hog individualistically. Uh, we've got to learn how to be together as the people of God. That doesn't mean that anything goes far from it. I hope you don't, wouldn't think I would say that. So th these are just little pinpricks, some of the things that I worry about. I worry about them in my own culture, but I see them writ large in yours. So uh, that, that's, that's for starters. When I'm, when I'm back home, maybe I'll write the fuller letter, but uh, <laughs> maybe not just yet. It has to be coffee time. We start again at quarter to 11 prompt. Thank you.